It's been said often that God made man in his own image. And ever since, man has tried to return the favor. God made man in his own image. And ever since then, we've tried as fallen sinners to remake God into our image and our own likeness. And we know from the scriptures that this is the essence of idolatry, remaking God into what we think he should be or what we think he should be like. Now, you may be forgiven in thinking that this was just something that ancient Israel struggled with. But it's actually not a problem only of ancient Israel. It's actually a problem, a longstanding problem in America. In fact, it's basically an American pastime of remaking Jesus into what we think he should be and be like. So, for example, right here in America, this is if you want made in America, here you go. Here's some made in in America Jesuses that you should be familiar with. Here we go. There's the scarlet letter Puritan Jesus. There's the, the Jeffersonian good moral teacher, but not divine Christ. There's the meek and mild Victorian Christ. There's the, the Fosdickian modern Christ. There's the Welch's grape juice teetotaler Christ. There's the anti-communist Christ. There's the capitalist free market Christ. There's the Jesus as CEO Christ. Have you seen this? CEO tips from Jesus, right? There's the hippie Jesus movie, or I'm sorry, Jesus movement Christ. If you go into a Christian bookstore, there's the Christian trinket, blonde hair, blue eye Christ. Now, we could keep going. There's left-wing Christ and right-wing Christ. I'm just going to stop there. My point is, we are, it's, it's an annual pastime in this country to make Jesus into what we want him to be. And listen, no one loves refashioning an understanding of Christ more than Satan. He loves when people trust in false Christs. So whatever you believe about Christ, you better be getting your understanding of who he is from him. R.C. Sproul put it like this. We need the real Christ. A recycled Christ, a Christ of compromise or an imaginary Christ can redeem no one. A Christ watered down, stripped of power, debased of glory, reduced to a symbol or made impotent by scholarly surgery is not Christ, but Antichrist. This morning, Jesus gives an answer to the question, who do you say that I am? That's the question Jesus proposes. And then Jesus answers the question. So this morning, let's listen to the real Christ provide the answer to the question, who is Jesus? If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 9. We're just doing five verses this morning. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll be far less bored. If you have a Bible open, and you can find this on page 
866 in the Pew Bible. If you're not used to reading a Bible, you can take the Pew Bible as a gift from our congregation to you. The big numbers, the chapter number, and then the little sentence numbers, that's the verse number. We're looking at big number nine, little number 18, down to verse 22. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, that is Jesus, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In this passage, brothers and sisters, we discover not only who Jesus is, but also what Jesus came to do. And the way we're going to come at this is under four headings. I'll give you the four headings now because I know some of you are serious note takers. Number one, verses 18 and 19, who Jesus isn't, who Jesus isn't. That's number one, who Jesus isn't, verses 18 and 19. Number two, who Jesus is, verse 20. Who Jesus isn't, verses 18 and 19. Number two, who Jesus is, verse 20. Verse, uh, number three, what Jesus must do. Who Jesus isn't, who Jesus is, what Jesus must do. That's verses 21 to 22. And then we're going to close with some application. And that's number four, what you must do. So this is not a sermon that you listen to and you're neutral. What Jesus says in this passage affects you. So let's ask these, let's, let's look at these headings and walk through it together. And my prayer is that each one of us would hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering because he who promised is faithful. Number one, who Jesus isn't. Look at verses 18 and 19 again. In these verses, Jesus poses the most important question you can answer in this world, namely Christ's identity and mission. Who is he and what did he come to accomplish? Look at verse 18. It happened as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? If you've been with us on this study of Luke's gospel, you remember that Jesus began his public ministry in Luke chapter four, and then he began preaching and teaching and healing and doing signs and wonders, mainly in the northern region, in the Galilee, in and around Lake Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was their home base, and Jesus has been preaching and teaching and lots of crowds have been gathering to follow him. We know from Matthew and Mark's account of this event that this question session happened near a place called Caesarea Philippi. 
And so that's where they are near these villages in the north when Jesus has this conversation. Verse 18, just to note, what is Jesus doing before this conversation happens? The son of God is praying alone. That's amazing. We'll come back to that later. Jesus takes the opportunity to ask the question, who do the crowds, all those people that are following, who do they say that I am? Notice the answer. Verse 19, John the Baptist, some say Elijah. If you read Matthew, he adds, others say Jeremiah. And others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. So the general answer to the crowd question is, they're saying you're basically a great prophet. We, we, on, we on the same page, you can see that. Elijah, John, maybe John the Baptist has come back from the dead. You're, Jeremiah, uh, you're, Elijah, you're, you're, you're someone great, like one of those prophets. You're, you're one of the great prophets of old, like, like they've come back. This is the same thing that, remember, in Luke chapter 9 earlier when we saw Herod. Herod wondered the same thing. Who is this Jesus guy? I thought I killed John the Baptist, yet Jesus is doing things that make me remember, you know, think of John the Baptist. Who is this? Is he Elijah? Is he John the Baptist raised from the dead? Who is this guy? And it's understandable, brothers and sisters, that the people would think of Jesus as a prophet because Jesus has even referred to himself as a what? As a prophet. Remember when when he preached in this hometown synagogue? What did he say before his sermon? He says, a prophet is, is, is without honor except where? In his hometown. He referred to himself as a as a prophet. Jesus has performed signs and wonders that make people remember the prophets. You remember in in Luke chapter seven, Jesus raised from the dead the son of the widow of Nain. The way he raised that young man from the dead, if you go back and read first and second Kings, Elijah and Elisha did something really similar. So Jesus did things to remind people of what God had done through the prophets. But here's here's Luke's point, and this is Jesus's point. Jesus isn't just a prophet. He isn't just a prophet. He isn't simply a great prophet. If all you understand Jesus to be is a great prophet, you are damning with faint praise because he is infinitely greater than a great prophet. Jesus is, as we've seen through Luke's gospel, the culmination of all Old Testament prophecy. He is the one, listen, that the prophets wrote about. They were the ones pointing to him. Jesus is saying that the Old Testament prophets were writing about him. Listen to, listen to what Jesus says about himself. This is a little bit later in, in, in Luke. Listen to this. Luke chapter 10, verses 23 and 24. This is crazy unless this person is the son of God. Listen to what he says about himself. Says to his disciples, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets desire to see what you see and hear what you hear. And they didn't hear it. Jesus is saying, you know what? Elijah and Elisha and Moses and Samuel, they would have loved to live and see and hear what you're able to see. Because I'm here. 
That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't just a prophet. Jesus is more than a prophet. There are 1.9 billion Muslims in the world who revere Jesus as a prophet. He's one of the greatest prophets. Right after Muhammad, they understand him to be the greatest prophet under Muhammad. They praise him as a prophet. They think Jesus is going to come again. You realize this? But guess what? That, that's not who Jesus says he is. He is a prophet. He is the greatest of prophets. But he's more than just a prophet. Behold, one greater than Solomon and Elijah and Moses and Samuel is here. So the first thing you want to see is Jesus addresses who he isn't. He isn't simply a great prophet. That's number one. Number two, well, who, who is he? Who, who is Jesus? If, if he said he, who he isn't, well, who is Jesus? Who Jesus is? Verse 20. Now Jesus turns the question from the crowds to the disciples themselves. If you look in your Bible, he says, who do you say that I am? And if you write in your Bible, you want to underline the word you. Because it's fronted in the original to give emphasis. Jesus leads with the word, yes, but you, who do you say that I am? This is a question that you must answer. You can't, uh, living in D.C., we get used to like professional question dodging, don't we? People become great at dodging. Someone will ask a question in a press conference or some politician and they just they just it's like they're they're skilled at just dodging. Right. Well, guess what? We're all great at dodging. And this is a question you can't dodge. Jesus asks you, who do you say that I am? This is an eternal question that you must answer. Well, then notice the response. Peter says, what does he say? The Christ of God. Do you see that? Don't look at me. Look at your Bibles. He says the Christ of God. Verse 20. Jesus is the Christ of God. That's the first thing to notice. So kids, Christ isn't Jesus's last name. Christ is a title. It's from the word, the Greek word where we get the word Messiah, anointed one. That's what that means. It's a title that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. In the Old Testament scriptures, you often found that those who were serving as a prophet or a priest or a king would be anointed with oil when they began their ministry. So remember when Samuel went and found the prophet or went to find the next king, he went to David's house, Jesse, and he went through all the different sons and he found David and said, this is the next king. This is God's king. And what did he do? What did Samuel do for David? He did what? He anointed his head with oil. Well, in the Old Testament prophets, that word for anointed one became associated not only with David, but with the greater son of David who was to come. The king who had been promised from the line of Judah as far back as Genesis 49. The Messiah, the seed of Eve, the seed of Abraham, the one who would restore and brings God's blessing to the world. This one, this Messiah, this anointed one, this Christ the Old Testament prophets hold out all of this messianic expectation of the anointed one who's going to come. 
And when Jesus gets up in Luke 4 in his hometown synagogue, Isaiah 61 is read. And Jesus stands up and says, after this verse is read, from Isaiah 61, which is talking about Messiah, the prophet says, the Lord has what? Anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And Jesus stands up and says, that scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing because he's the anointed one. He's the Christ. But there's one other phrase I want you to see. It's not just the Christ of God. Look at the phrase Jesus uses concerning himself. Look down at verse 22. Jesus, after Peter gives the right answer, the Christ of God, Jesus uses a phrase there in verse 22, the son of what? Son of man. Now, in the Old Testament, I know you, this, you may all know all this, but just this is helpful to re- remind yourself. In the Old Testament, the son of man, that phrase can just refer to a human being. So in Psalm 8, David applies it. To, it's, just, it's, a, it's a word that means you're human. Uh, the son of man that you're mindful of, um, it's just referencing to human beings. Other places in the Old Testament, we see this. Ezekiel refers to himself as a son of man. But when Jesus uses this phrase, the son of man, He has in mind a particular passage in the Old Testament that's about the Messiah. You want to write this in your Bibles. This is Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Why is this significant? Listen to what the prophet Daniel says about the Son of Man. When Jesus claims that this is who he is, it it should perk you up a little bit. Because this is an astounding claim that Jesus is making. In Daniel 7, he sees a vision, and this is what he sees. Listen, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, which is God, and was presented before the Ancient of Days. And to him, that is to the Son of Man, listen, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve or worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. This is, this is amazing. Someone who is a human being, a son of man, And yet is receiving honor and dominion and glory and worship that only God deserves. That's a mystery. How can that be? Well, that riddle is solved when Christ comes. And so Peter is correct. He says, Christ of God. That's the right answer. He gets a hundred on the test. That's right. But here's the problem. Jesus tells him at the very end. Verse 22, 21, 22, he says, don't tell anybody. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. That that, that should cause you to pause. He gets the right answer, then he immediately says, don't tell anybody. Now, that brings us to number three. What Jesus must do. What Jesus must do. Look again at verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Now, Some people, disobedient Christians, have used verse 21 
to be their life verse in regards to evangelism, right? Don't tell anyone. That seems to be the life verse for some Christians. Don't, don't ever tell anyone about Jesus, right? Um, that would be a misunderstanding of that verse, okay? But we need to ask ourselves, what is going on? That seems odd. Peter identifies who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Christ of God. And then Jesus immediately says, great, don't tell anybody this. So what's going on here? Um, The answer is found in the first word of verse 22. Look at the first word of verse 22. It's the word sang. Do you see that? Sang. That's, That's what we call a participle, which is an ing word that helps get the main verb done. Here's what's going on. This is what I I think is going on. Jesus affirms Peter's answer that he is indeed the Christ of God, the Messiah. But Jesus forbids them from telling anybody because they have a faulty understanding of what the Messiah is and what the Messiah has come to do. So notice that word saying, don't tell anybody, saying, and then Jesus tells Peter and the disciples that the Messiah is going to suffer. That's not what they were expecting. And so it reminded me, there's a a wonderful movie. uh, You may have heard it. It's called The Princess Bride. Remember this? And there's a guy on there named Anigo Montoya. Remember this? And he says to Vanzini, you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means, right? That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He says the Christ of God, but he doesn't understand his understanding of what Messiah is and means is not the one Jesus wants him to tell people about. So Jesus says, look, I don't, right answer, but don't tell anybody yet because what you think the Messiah is and what he's gonna do is not what the Bible is prophesying about. So let me, let me tease this out a little bit more. He's gonna tell his followers there in verse 22, look, look again, verse 22, saying the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised from the dead. You see, this isn't the Messiah that Peter and the apostles were expecting. That's not what they thought the Messiah was going to do. They were thinking of a political Messiah who comes in, kicks out the Romans, gets the Gentiles out of the promised land, sets up the Davidic kingdom and starts ruling from Jerusalem. That's what they were waiting for. And this kind of nationalistic understanding of the Messiah's mission is found in other places in the Gospels. I'll just give you one example. In John chapter 6, verse 15, you can read this later. Right after Jesus multiplies the fish and the loaves, remember this? He feeds these massive uh, crowds of people. As soon as he does that, we're told in John 6, 15, the people came to Jesus and they sought to make him king. And you're expecting Jesus to be like, yes, they finally got it. Nope. We're told in John 6, 15, Jesus withdrew because he didn't come to be the king of bread. He didn't come to just make people, oh, here's your your bread. I'll, I'll be your king now. The king that they wanted was not the king that he proved to be. That's what's going on in that little participle saying. Jesus is saying, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah yet because here's who the Messiah is and this is what the Messiah has come to do. Namely, to do four things. Let's let's ponder them briefly. Number one, 
The Messiah must suffer. The Messiah must suffer. It's right there in verse 22. The Messiah, that's shocking. The long-awaited king, the royal figure promised in the Old Testament, will walk a path of pain. He will suffer. And the phrase that just struck me this week as I meditate on this passage is that phrase, many things. There's a, there's a world of anguish in, that two, in those two words. He must suffer many things. You remember when Peter and the other gospel writers draw this out. Remember when Peter heard this? Jesus said, I've come to suffer. Do you remember what Peter says? Peter takes Jesus off to the side and we're told in Matthew 16, he does what? He rebukes Jesus. Now, just as a tip, if you're a young Christian, don't ever rebuke Jesus. Not good. Don't, you don't, he can rebuke you, but you, do not, you never rebuke him. He rebukes Jesus and says, he says, far be it, Lord. That shall never happen to you. You'll never suffer as long as I'm around. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, what? Satan. Because your mind, remember, your mind is set not on the things of God, but on the things of man. Of course, Peter would think that the Messiah is not going to suffer. But Jesus says, no, the Messiah must suffer. Number two, the Messiah must be rejected. Again, this is even more shocking. The one Israel was waiting for, they're going to reject. For in large measure, the very people Jesus came to, his own, for large measure, rejected him. The long-awaited, promised, prophesied Messiah must be rejected. This is shocking. There's a remnant who believed And who received the Messiah. But the majority, especially those in leadership, the elders, you see right there, the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, for the most part, they rejected him. John says he came to his own and his own people rejected him. John 1 verse 11. And then it gets worse for Peter, at least. He not only must suffer and he must be rejected. Look at number three. The Messiah must be killed. Whoa, the son of man must be killed. And do you see that word must right there at the beginning of the verse? Do you see that word must? That's the main verb. Everything else in the passage is supporting or unpacking that word must. That word must, in your Bible, it may say it is necessary. The point is, this isn't like sometimes people talk about the cross like, you know what? If Jesus had just kept his mouth shut, you know, Jesus, he he said some controversial things and got himself killed. Brothers and sisters, that word must indicates it's a plan. Jesus is announcing beforehand, not an option like we I might go to the cross or I might not. It's purposeful. He knows that the cross is coming. He says, I must be killed. 
It is necessary. There's sovereign purposes behind that word must. He's the lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. He is the one who will be pierced for our transgressions. It is written that this will happen. The disciples, listen, envisioned a king without a cross. And Jesus is saying, I'm the king and I will die on a cross. And just lest you think this is all review for you, as followers of Christ, we're tempted to want to be a follower of Christ without carrying a cross, don't we? So don't just dunk on Peter. If I asked you, if you could make a wish and you could be a, a happy Christian and walk through this world and never go through hardship, trial, or suffering, or you could go the path he has ordained for you to walk. Which one would you take? You might be tempted to say, I'll take the option with no suffering. So let's not dunk on Peter. Christ's cross wasn't optional. It was ordained. It wasn't chance. It was certain. And Jesus announces his death in Jerusalem again and again and again, because this was something that the disciples simply couldn't handle. They couldn't understand it. They didn't get it. So if a few verses later, a few chapters later in Luke chapter 18, listen to the specifics. Jesus says this over and over and over again. Listen to the specifics. He took the 12. This is Luke 18, verse 31. He took the 12 and he said to them again, see, we're going to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked and he will be shamefully treated and he will be sped upon and they after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And then we're told by Luke, they understood none of these things. The Messiah must suffer. The Messiah must be rejected. The Messiah must be killed. And then number four, praise be the God, the Messiah must be raised. Jesus says the son of man will be raised on the third day. Even before this happens, Jesus says, I'm going to die. But three days later, death will not hold me. I will rise again. He summarizes the gospel, basically. The life, death, burial of Jesus Christ for sinners like you and me. So this is, this is who Jesus is. And this is what Jesus has come to do. Now, what implications should we draw from this passage for our own lives and for the life of our church. Um, There are only five verses, but I found seven implications. Here we go. Number one, these are quick, but number one, first implication, you must answer Christ's question. Who do you say that I am? You must answer that question. You, You will answer the question eventually one way or the other. But you must answer it. You must answer. If you're not a follower of Christ, you need to give an answer to this. We're glad that you're here. If if you're not a Christian and you're here, we're thankful that you're here. There's no other place we'd want you to be than here. This was actually why the gospel of Luke was written. To introduce people to who Jesus is and what he's come to do. 
And we would love to try to answer that question from God's word. I remember reading these words for the first time several years ago, and they're still helpful. So I'm going to read them again. Uh, you know, know of C.S. Lewis? This is, this is what C.S. Lewis says to folks who are thinking about Jesus as merely a prophet or just a good moral teacher. Jesus says, or, sorry, C.S. Lewis says this, quote, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Namely, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or he would be the devil himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he is a madman or something else. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. This is who Jesus says he is, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's who he says he is. So what does that, what implication does that have for our lives? Number one, we have to answer that question. And number two, you must repent and believe in Christ. You must repent and believe in Christ. The reason Christ came into the world was to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We read in Luke 15, the one thing we're told in Luke 15 that makes all of heaven rejoice. That makes the angels and archangels sing praise is when one sinner repents. What does repentance mean? It means turning, turning away from your own self-righteousness. Turning away from your own rebellion, turning away from your own best efforts to clean yourself up, turning away from your low thoughts of Christ and turning towards him, receiving him, embracing him, trusting him in the empty hands of faith. Jesus offers himself to sinners If you will have him. So friend, the application for you, if you don't know the savior is to repent and to trust in this one who came and lived and died and rose again. Now, what does this look like? Briefly, it looks like this. It's not coming to Jesus with a list of all the things you've done. Here's all the things that the good things I've done. Jesus gives a picture of another kind of approach to him, namely someone who won't even lift their eyes to heaven and who calls out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus will. He is full of mercy. 
for sinners who come to him by faith alone. Number three, you must take up your cross and follow Christ. Just look down at verse 23. We're not going to read this passage, but just look at verse 23. Jesus is going to spend the very next paragraph walking through what it means to be his disciple. And what it means is to take up your cross and to follow him. And because that's such an important thing, we're going to have a whole message just on that. But that's an implication, is that if we follow a suffering servant, we should expect to take up the cross and follow him, even in a path of suffering through this world. Number, th- number four, that's number four, almost there. You must commune with Christ. You must say, where in the world is this in, the, in this passage? You must commune with Christ. It's not the central point. I, I, I give that. But I just want to point out in verse 18, we find the son of the living God devoting himself to prayer. Do you see that? Just do you ever pause and wonder at the amazement that Christ felt the desire, maybe even the need to pray before this? It's amazing. In Luke's gospel, before any major decision, we find the son of God in solitary places praying. He spent time alone in prayer. And my question simply is, do you? Do you pray? As a follower of Christ, do you pray? If you want a helpful meditation on prayer, just listen to the sermon from last week again, from Bill Decker, a wonderful sermon on prayer. But do you pray? Do you take time to commune with Christ in prayer? If if this isn't a priority, you need to change your priorities. Because there's nothing that's more significant to your spiritual well-being than communing with Christ in his word by prayer. I, this was helpful for me. It may not be helpful for you, but maybe this is just the different ways that we're wired. If you take 15 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day to pray, that's it, just 15. That's two hours a week alone with Christ in prayer. That's seven and a half hours every month. And that's 90 hours every year. Let me ask you, could you think of a better way to spend 90 hours of your life a year? Maybe this coming year, if the Lord tarries, you should say, you know what? I'm going to just take 15 minutes every morning and talk to the Lord in prayer. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, said this, a Christian can as well hear without ears and live without food, and fight without hands, and walk without feet, as he's able to live without prayer. Prayer is the life of our lives. We see the Savior's example in this passage, and if we're following him, we should do the same. Number five, almost there. You must commune with Christ. Number five, you must proclaim Christ. You must proclaim Christ. The whole two-volume work of Luke and Acts was written by Luke to help us understand the church's calling to proclaim Christ to the ends of the earth. That's why he wrote these two volumes. That's what we see is that the the book of Acts is, uh, the book of of Luke is the the coming of Christ. Then we see Jesus die, rise again, and ascend. Luke, uh, volume two, basically the book of Acts begins with the spirit 
descending. And then we see the church going out from Jerusalem, just like Jesus says, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so you can see this in Luke 24. Jesus intends his identity, his message of the gospel to be proclaimed to all the nations. This is what we call the Great Commission. So Christian, if, if you're here this morning, it's, it's because someone proclaimed Christ to you. Someone was obedient to the Great Commission to, to, to bring the gospel to you. It could have been when you were a little, little kid. It could have been a VBS worker. It could have been a pastor. It could have been a parent. It could have been a neighbor. I had three seventh grade friends to share the gospel with me. Changed my life forever. And so our calling as a church is to proclaim Christ where we are and to, as best we can, take the gospel to the nations. God has brought the nations here to Northern Virginia, and we have the privilege of also going in other places and supporting gospel work to the ends of the earth. So we must, we can't just keep this message to ourselves. We want to pass it on to others. That's what he's going to call Peter to. Isn't that amazing? Peter goes from not really being clear on who Jesus is, right? He's going to deny Jesus three times. But then after Jesus is raised, he restores Peter. And who's the one who stands up at Pentecost and preaches the greatest sermon in the book of Acts? This guy. And 3,000 are saved. He was clear on who Christ was at that point, I think. Number six. You must give thanks for Christ. Where am I getting that? I'm getting that from this. If you're here this morning and you are confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, that didn't come from your own wisdom. It didn't come from your own spiritual ingenuity. It wasn't because you're smarter than someone else who doesn't become a Christian. It's grace from beginning to end. When Peter said in Matthew's account, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, Jesus immediately says to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my father who is in heaven. So we just had Thanksgiving. I know you're thinking already about Christmas this morning. If you're a Christian, you should thank God that you're a Christian because it wasn't your mom and dad. It wasn't your heritage. It wasn't your grandparents. It was grace that opened your eyes to see who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 1 John 5, 1. You're born again, just as we sing in Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound who saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was what? Blind, but now I see. So thank God. God for Jesus Christ in opening your eyes and giving you the miracle of the new birth. Number seven, and we're done. This is it. You must marvel at the love of Christ. You must marvel at the love of Christ. When you read the gospels, brothers and sisters, you need to look for the heart of Christ displayed towards sinners. That's where the heart of Christ is made known to us. And do you see the love of Christ, his infinite heart towards you? He knew what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And he still went there. 
He knew that he was going to suffer. He knew that he was going to be rejected. He knew that he was going to be killed. He knew that he was going to be crucified. And he still went. Why did he do that? He, he lived in the shadow of the cross his whole life. Chapter 9, verse 51, it says, When his days drew near for him to be taken up, I love this phrase, he set his face like flint. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. He did that because he loves you. The Christ of God loves you. And his infinite heart led him to the cross. I love 1 John 3.16. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. Christian, marvel at the deep Deep love of Christ. The one who loves you with an everlasting love is the Christ of God, the eternal son of man who has been given dominion and glory and a kingdom that will never end. He is the one who is the Messiah. That's who he claims to be because that's exactly who he is. And the only question that remains to be answered is the one that he asks. Who do you say that I am? Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and heavenly father, we thank you for being a merciful God who loves sinners, who has redeemed us, not by anything that we have done, but because of your saviors, because of the savior's perfect and spotless righteousness and grace. Father, we pray that we would not only know these things, but that by your spirit, you would cause us to delight in them. Help us to rejoice and to be thankful this day because you have redeemed us with the blood of your son. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus name. Amen.